This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We are bringing you the very best of book nerdery. Today we're going to be talking with Lev Grossman, who's a senior writer and book critic for Time Magazine, about how best books of the year lists get put together. We're also going to take a call from PW Features editor Andrew Albanese, who's got some interesting info for us about some disputes with publishers and the Department of Justice and what that means for readers. But first, we've got some highlights of this week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. There was something you wanted to to highlight there, so it's uh, at the top of our list this week, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, so so the top of the list. This is the the uh, combined fiction, nonfiction, kids books. I was very happy to see uh, a kids book topping the list, and this is Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the Third Wheel. Uh, this, I believe, is the seventh in the series by Jeff Kinney. And this book is a book for a, ages readers eight to twelve, um, and it's about a boy in middle school. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a diary actually of his of middle school, uh, along with illustrations. And this is topping at the uh, the top of our list. Uh, it's been on the weeks for on the list for six weeks now, and so far they looks like they've got one hundred eighty six thousand books sold. Wow! So do you think that's just a lot of Christmas presents? Is that what's pushing those sales at the the end of last year, the beginning of this year? I mean, if it's still yeah. on the list, yeah. that means we're done with holiday shopping season, right? And really into people just buying it for themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is something this was long anticipated. Well, actually, maybe not so long long anticipated, but as anticipated as any of his books are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a book that's kind of perfect for kids who are just starting to read. And it's written in kind of like a kid's dialect as mm-hmm. well, too, which I think some parents uh, were angered about saying, well, how can you be teaching kids proper English when this book is is in slang? And uh, uh, others saying, well, hey, they're reading. It's great. It's got some illustrations and all. But uh, they're, they're really popular with kids. I know my son has been reading uh, these books as well. So it's just kind of interesting to see a book uh, that is on top of uh, Bill O'Reilly's Killing Kennedy and uh, Killing Lincoln, uh, as well as another book that we've talked about before, Barefoot Contessa, Full Recipes, which have all been uh, topping the list uh, Mm -hmm. in the previous weeks. And and it looks like we have some books that are on the list that might have been inspired by... uh, Bestsellers. Well, so I, I pulled out a couple when I was looking at the list. Um, on our hardcover nonfiction list, Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers is at number 22. And Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies is at number 22, also on our hardcover fiction list. But both of those books came out in early 2012. And one of the things that our list shows is how many weeks a book right. has been on. And uh, I was, I was like, I realized they've, they've only been on for like nine or ten weeks. And so I started wondering what was it that happened at the end of 2012 that can boost a book like that? I mean, obviously, the, both these books have been very well received. They got very positive reviews right. uh, before they came out, after they came out. And yet something really gave them a a push. And so I did a little research and I found out that the answer is awards. Uh, Bring Bring Up the Bodies won the Man Booker Prize in October. 
And Behind the Beautiful Forever has won the National Book Award in November. And that is basically when they start hitting the Publishers Weekly bestseller list. So I've heard a lot of people talk about how awards aren't relevant anymore. Right, or right. this is just for the literati. And they're very obscure. I think actually um, the uh, some of the awards juries have been getting a lot of pressure to uh, be more populist, mm-hmm. almost, they, or, or accused of very deliberately picking something that's that's very obscure. Um, but obviously, these these books are resonating with readers because uh, as soon as those awards uh, are announced, as soon as the the stickers go on the book jackets, right. um, then people start buying them. So yeah, the, those the sales have really been award driven. And even because you had mentioned the Man Booker Prize, I mean, that's not something that American audiences w- would know much about. Yeah, I, I think um, that's one of the, the interesting things for me is it's that it doesn't I, – I think of the Man Booker Prize as also being sort of fairly obscure. Like it's not, not a thing that uh, Americans care all that much about. It's not a thing that people outside the literary circles care all that much about right. except – there, the book is on our bestseller list, and you know, not topping the charts, but doing very, very respectably. Yeah, it was especially for yeah, exactly, especially for a book that has been out for for a little while right now. And that's the hardcover list, even right. though there's now a paperback edition. So uh, people are still picking up that hardcover, and this may be because there are some booksellers that discount hardcovers very heavily, but. Uh, either way, it's really uh, an interesting push, right, right. I felt. And it's tr- it's true that um, best books of the year lists also come out around this time of year. Exactly, to kind of help boost uh, sales. And uh, just because it's been, this is you know the end of the year, holiday time. And um, it, it, it's a time for many magazines and, and journals to publish what we've seen as standout books. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do it right before the holiday. So it's good that you know, at least I feel that we're giving a boost to certain books as well. Yeah. I'm Mark Rotella for Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. And we're talking about uh, this week's bestseller list. And we also have some information on books that are coming out right around now. Uh, Mark, I think you had highlighted a couple of titles. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I kind of thought around this time that we'd be seeing on the bestseller list uh, books uh, that have to do with New Year's resolutions, maybe more how-to books. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps we'll see that in the following week's list. But it seems to me that a lot of books, there are quite a few books coming out January 1st, the first first uh, first week, this week of, of January. And it, they kind of run the gamut from uh, diet books. Um, one is called Thinner This Year by Chris Crowley. It's published by Workman. Another one is called The... Yes, the MILF diet. So uh, I looked at that and I thought, you know, have have we have diet books jumped the shark? Is this are we done now? Can we just can we just be done the MILF diet? Uh, yeah, I know. I, I thought we've been having we've been seeing I, every time we, we we get new books coming out. I think this has got to be the end of these diet books. <laughs> it's probably never the end because no, we'll never no. run out of New Year's resolutions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And everyone uh, kind of turns to the same resolutions. Again and again. Another one is um, Who Are You Meant to Be? A groundbreaking step-by-step process for discovering and fulfilling your true potential. So those may be doing a little more uh, searching other than physical, maybe a little more Mm -hmm. soul-searching. And along those lines, uh, the Encore Career Handbook. So those of us who are considering job changes as are presenting them as New Year's resolutions might might look to this one. Hmm. Uh, then uh, uh, another book, uh, but for, for maybe parents who are now considering um, 
putting their kids through college is uh, Right College, Right Price, the new system for discovering the best college fit for the best price. Um, now, all of these books, I, I'm looking at the numbers here, have uh, pretty pretty. Substantial print numbers, at least pretty decent print numbers, 50,000 copies of print. The uh, uh, Thinner by the Year is about 100,000 copies. Now, for, uh, for our listeners who aren't mm-hmm. that familiar with how publishing works, um, generally Tuesday is book birthday. Um, so books launch on Tuesday. It's actually right. uh, probably a little difficult for publishers when a date like January 1st falls on a Tuesday. Stores might be closed. It's a little bit hard to to push a book when it's launching on a holiday. But these sales, these um, these print numbers uh, mm-hmm. that we're talking about are, are the numbers that the publishers expect to sell. So they're basically saying uh, with anything, you get a bulk discount at printing, right? right. So, so it's much uh, cheaper per book to print 100,000 than to print... Uh, 10,000. But on the other hand, you're saying, you know, now I'm stuck with 100,000 books. I hope somebody's going to buy them. So by saying that this book has a a first print run of 50,000 or 75,000, that's a big investment from the publisher. Yeah, it is. It is. Though now uh, uh, printing is actually becoming a little bit uh, more cost effective. So people can do smaller print runs a little bit easier. But with publishers are announcing big print runs, it's kind of announcing, uh, 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 making aware the the various publicity or uh, marketing angles that we are putting a lot of energy and time behind right. this book so we will do what it takes to make this book work. It's kind of like giving a student a scholarship. You know, you're you're saying yeah, right. you know, we're putting our money into this because we expect that we're going to get a good return. Yeah, right, exactly. That's a good way to look at it as we're talking about colleges. So. Yeah, I'm actually surprised to to see books about picking a college coming out in January. I feel like it's a little late for that. Uh, I, I certainly know people whose seniors have been doing the rounds of college visits for months yes, now. Yes, that's true. Or or it could be uh, that these are for people who are uh, way, way ahead of the game, uh, as so many eager parents are nowadays. Who knows? Who knows, indeed. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Uh, next up, we're going to be speaking about 2012's hot books with Lev Grossman, who's a senior writer and critic for Time magazine. Um, and he has been putting together their list of the best books of the year. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Today we've got Lev Grossman on the line. He's an author, most recently of The Magician King. But we're talking to him with his book reviewer hat on. He is a senior writer and critic for Time Magazine. Lev, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. (laughs) Um, So I was looking at your Time's uh, Best Books of the Year list and uh, comparing it to PW's Best Books of the Year list, not in any competitive spirit, but I'm always curious to see uh, what the differences are. Um, And one one difference uh, that's immediately uh, obvious to me is that PW splits the uh, adult books from children. So we have a a top 10 list for all adult titles. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have a separate list for children's and YA fiction titles. Uh, And time combines them. Uh, But you have separate lists for fiction and nonfiction. So how do you think those different approaches kind of shape your list? Well, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a terrible criminal thing comparing books to each other. I mean, they're just, it's obviously, it's always apples and oranges, right. I guess. Um, you have to decide if you're going to do apples and oranges or apples and cantaloupes, um, <laughs> which horribly diverse, incompatible things you're going to try to 
cram into the same bucket. We do fiction and nonfiction. Um, basically, well, we can only have two lists um, because we have a lot of lists, um, uh, not just books. And so we have to stop the madness somewhere. Uh-huh. Um, and fiction and nonfiction, well, I don't know. It seems so the stakes are so different. It's true. I mean, it, nonfiction. the audiences are, are probably different, too, though. Um, in some ways, you know, like I handle popular fiction, uh, which can be very different from literary fiction. And Mark handles a lot of popular nonfiction, which can be very different from academic nonfiction. So maybe the audiences are not so different. Yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're obviously um, you're just making gross generalizations. Uh, mm-hmm. However you slice it, I would love to be able to break these down, uh, you know, more granularly. Um, but, you know, time being a broad general interest publication, um, you have to be canny about uh, how you allot your sort of real estate for books. That's true. Your audience is also very different from ours. You know, PW is uh, an industry magazine. We're talking to publishers. We're talking to booksellers, librarians, people who are in the business of books. And you have a much bigger and more diverse audience. It's funny because you think, you know, the worth of a book, it's, it's this wonderful abstract thing that exists in an aesthetic realm. But even, at, you know, at this beginning step, uh, who your audience is really shapes um, the list in lots of ways. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, how do you all decide, uh, you know, at time, decide on the best books? At PW, uh, basically what we do is we, the editors get together and we kind of talk about, hash out our uh, the list of books. Now, we also have a much longer list. We have our top 10, which is, as Rose said, is, is kind of a combined list. But then we also have either the luxury or I, I don't know if it's a luxury or not of, of, of having an extra uh, 90 books on the list. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking <laughs> is what it is. I mean, each of us has a, has a specialty. So, for example, I handle the romance, and so I get five books for romance, and I handle science fiction, fantasy, and horror, which right there is three categories, and I get right. seven books in right. those three categories. Categories and and again, it's apples and oranges. It's putting hard science fiction next to epic fantasy, next to mm. gruesome horror, and and you know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. It, and each of us editors kind of uh, uh, goes through the books that we've reviewed. We we uh, uh, go through a list. Sometimes we may even pull our reviewers um, just to see what books were stand out, you know, stood out for them. And then we kind of go from there. And then sure. we get together to talk about the top ten list. And this is when a lot of the action and and uh, talking and and really some good thought come comes Back out of seven. it. How, now, how does how does it work at time for either for your list or the various lists? Well, um, it works very differently. Uh, you know, I'm I am the book critic at time. Um, right. The the as it, as it would imply suggests that, that there really is only one. Um, everybody at time, you know, mm-hmm. reads books, but I'm the only one who does it in a systematic way. Who covers books as a beat. So you know, a lot of the uh, the, the 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 violent debate occurs within my head, uh, and not necessarily with other people. Less so with the nonfiction books. With nonfiction, I'm able to go to my colleagues, and I'll go to Joe Klein, for example, who works at Time. And say, Joe, what are the best political books that came out this year? Right. And Joe will know because Joe reads everything. Uh, and you know, similarly, one can go. You can just go. You can make a big circuit around the office and just knock at people's doors, as I do, and say, "What have you read?" what's been good. Uh, so their input comes into that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, there are people, the, this, the arts editor of Time, this, her boss, who's also, uh, who comes from the Paris Review, was a uh, very literary person. Um, a couple of 
freelance writers who sometimes work as critics, like Mary Poles, um, you bring them in, uh, and I'm always trying to goad them into, um, you know, putting uh, putting forth their ideas and, and 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 arguing for things. But even with all that, of the fiction books on the list, eight of them were my choices because I couldn't get people to, um, you know, to really uh, uh, to advocate hard enough for the ones they right. loved. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we're talking with Lev Grossman about building Time Magazine's list of the best books of 2012. Uh, One of the other things I noticed about the list, uh, again, comparing Times to PWs, is that there's not really a lot of overlap between the two. Uh, So, for example, Hilary Mantel's novel, Bring Up the Bodies, uh, Chris Ware's graphic novel, Building Stories, and then two nonfiction titles, uh, People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Parry and Iron Curtain by Anne Applebaum. Um, And everything else is very different. So I know. With and with all the resources at your disposal, I don't know how you got it so wrong. <laughs> That's funny. That's just what I was going to say about you. <laughs> Focusing on the positive. Um, so, so since you know, clearly the only place where we both were right was about these books that we that we both listed. Um, what do you think makes those books uh, so excellent or so something um, that everybody has been talking about them? Yeah, well, it's funny, especially with, with People Who Eat Darkness, which is a book that, for me, came out of left field. Um, I didn't even get the impression that its publisher was pushing it, you know, super hard, like mm-hmm. the, the major book of the year. Um, but the yeah, storytelling I've... was so compelling. Uh, the writing was very good. And obviously, he'd put years and years of reporting into this book. Uh, uh, it really, it swept me away. And, you know, you, look, you want to look for books that are where the stakes are high. And, of course, you know, the stakes is murder, there's life and death, but there's also these incredible questions of, of, of cultural difference. Um, now, I, I haven't read that book. Can you summarize it a little bit or describe it? Yeah, of course. It? It's about a woman who, uh, it's, about, it's, a, it's a true crime uh, book about a woman who was killed uh, in, I think, the year 2000. Um, she was a hostess, uh, she was a Westerner, but she was a hostess at a, at a Tokyo bar and she disappeared. Uh, and it took a very long time for um, the police to get serious about pursuing uh, suspects, and then a much longer time uh, for them to convict anybody. Uh, and Lloyd Perry, who's a veteran journalist um, for a, a UK paper who's spent most of his career in, in uh, Asia, just you know spent years and years running this down and talking to everybody and finally just distilling it down to this really riveting story. Hmm. So the, I, I feel like that's almost... Uh, what I would call narrative nonfiction. You know, it, it really it tells a story that's as gripping as any fictional mystery. Very much so, and more more gripping than most. So um, maybe that's part of what sort of cemented its appeal for a lot of people is that you just kind of sit down and you're sucked into it. Yeah, yeah. Which and it's different for for the Apple Bomb. Um, I don't know if you read that. You know that that's a book that um, has this just gloriously rich uh, weight of research, but took me about eight times as long as uh, as, as as to read as it, as the um, as people who read darkness, um, but still so important. And and uh, 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 you realize that you know this is going to be the authoritative narrative of these events um, for decades. Comment, it's true, and you know, I I'm, I I also read her. I, I felt that way with the Iron Curtain. I also felt that way with her uh, her first book, Gulag, uh, which was also uh, a uh, National Book Award nominee. I mean, she didn't get the award for either one, as you as you know. But I felt the same way, and in selecting this one, I thought it was. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. The definitive history of of this this event in Eastern Europe. 
And now there's another book that I wanted to to talk about, and we both the one that we both talked about, which is kind of uh, we made our list, and it's a, more of a graphic novel, and that was Building Stories by Chris Ware. Mm. How did you come at, how, how did you come about selecting that one? You know, I uh, I like comics, um, and and, and I, I I try to stay on top of them, uh, and I try to push for you know diversity on our list, um, uh, not only in terms of race and gender and fiction and translation and sexual preference and things like that, but also uh, in terms of genre. And I always want to make sure that there's some graphic novels on the list. And this year we actually have three, I think. Um, uh, the Chris Ware, I mean, uh, it was sort of coming up. You, you, it loomed large on the horizon because Ware, of course, is a, is a well-known genius. And this was obviously just looking at it, this book, which is consists of, of pamphlets and, and chapbooks and a big screen and, and, and yeah, comic it's, books. it's incredible. Its yeah. ambition is quite obvious. Um, and then you start going through it and you realize that it lives up to it um, and more. That was one of the easier choices, I guess, uh, on the list. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And we're talking with Time Magazine book critic Lev Grossman about best of the year book lists. And Lev, you just mentioned that um, you pay particular attention to diversity, and I was actually already going to ask you about that because there's been a lot of talk in the book world over the last few years about making sure that books by minority authors, so people of color, LGBT people, uh, authors whose works are translated into English from other languages, are given a fair shake, um, especially in these very mainstream publications. And often those books have smaller print runs or there's less distribution or they come out from smaller publishers um, so they can be a little harder to get hold of. So how do you make sure that you're seeing and considering these books that might usually fly under the critical radar? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, very, it's difficult when you're a one-person shop. Um, just the, the pretense that I have read you know, <laughs> a, a, anything, even, a, even a, a simple majority of books published this year is, is, is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just impossible uh, so I spend a lot of time talking to other critics, trying to get a sense of what's out there that, that, that people are excited about, whoever wrote it and wherever it it, um, it comes from. Uh, but I think a lot, I, I'd like to know what you guys do about this. Um, in terms of, I think about whether I should try to balance the list or not in terms of what I think were great books, but then also trying to maintain some diversity. And I generally do. I generally do balance the list um, uh, just because... Uh, I recognize that as a straight, white, middle-aged male, um, I, I'm sure that I have um, predispositions and biases and things like that that I want to, you know, I want to be aware of myself. And uh, if they're there, compensate for them. And I, I, I think we do something similar, though, probably on a larger scale, just because we have a bigger staff. You know, PW is very focused on reviewing. So we have you know, a good half dozen reviews editors, and then each of us has dozens of freelancers working for us. Um, so I, I think we just sort of look for, uh, look for books that we might otherwise have overlooked pretty much everywhere we go. We talk about them with one another. But I also, um, when it's coming up to best of the year time, I send an email out to all of my reviewers. Mm. Um, and I have probably 50 different freelancers who review for me at any given time. So, you know, a, a real uh, diversity of opinions and experiences there. And you know, some of them are romance focused and some of them are science fiction focused. And you know, they, they all have their own little niche interests. And so I say, what was the best book you read? What what book do you think uh, is was really just fantastic? What knocked your socks off? And I, I think it's very possible to genuinely incorporate diversity. I don't think anyone's looking for tokenism, 
Certainly uh, not. And, uh, and I think it would be a disservice to everyone to engage in, in a sort of quota system. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I read some of these books by uh, authors from outside the United States uh, or authors of color, and I'm just like, why, why is nobody paying attention to this? This is so obviously great. And, uh, and so I, I think, you know, by, by consciously looking, um, by just opening my eyes to the, the richness of, of what is being published, I feel like um, I do a service to everyone and I do my job better just by looking at really everything that's out there. Yeah, I think we have a uh, at, at PW uh, the luxury, like I said, of, of having a staff could, you know, look at these books and we do talk to each other about it and we look at the list. We, we look, I think, to see who do we have on there. And I remember, I think it was two or three years ago, we published a list that was all white middle-aged men. I Actually. remember that, yeah. <laughs> and there was and there was a big fuss, yeah. Um, and and it, you know we stood by it, yeah, exactly. And looking um, at the list, we thought, well, these are are actually the best books this season. Now it's changed since then. I mean, uh, yeah. And Victor I think Laval at, was our cover model a couple of years ago, and he's right. on our he's on our list again the second time uh, right. this year. Um, but I, you know, it it is it is going to be the case that sometimes the list is more diverse, and sometimes it's not. But I think you just have to you have to open yourself to the possibility. You you can't you can't cut anything off without considering it. I was interested uh, in in your guys' choices, which was, there were a lot of surprises on there for me. Um, I, I was surprised, for example, that you didn't have uh, Robert Caro on there or Andrew Solomon. But, uh, the, those two books, um, Passage of Power, uh, uh, the biography of. of of Johnson and um, Far From the Tree are on, are on virtually every list um, around the country. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting that you guys uh, didn't have those on there. Um, Gino Diaz wasn't on there. And uh, uh, W by Zadie Smith. Some really interesting choices. I'm curious curious about how the debate goes. I have a fantasy about how it goes. All you guys are heavily into books. <laughs> I'm going to leave this, this one. Just... <laughs> I'm going to leave this one to Mark because I actually um, I was traveling during the time that most of the debate was happening. So I basically gave someone my proxy vote for the Victor Laval oh, right. book. And for the rest of it, I said, you know, all, all the stuff I like is genre that's um, probably not going to be taken seriously enough. <laughs> This is Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio, and uh, we're speaking with Lev Grossman, novelist and book critic at Time Magazine, and we are talking about the differences at this moment in our lists. And you're right, you know, with uh, uh, with the, with those, I think three books that you mentioned. Uh, I think part of it is that since we have just one top ten list combining both fiction and nonfiction, there were um, all of those books were on our long list, which which uh, is. Which kind of is, is saves us, uh, but but uh, but so so we kind of had to decide between you know five nonfiction and five fiction, and and talking about it, those these were just the five ones that that stood out. I mean, uh, I remember the Andrew Solomon book, and you're absolutely right that uh, that that topped everyone's list, and it uh, only made it to our hundred list. So I, I think it's maybe because we have just five fewer books in each category than you. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard being limited like that. I mean, um, it, within the genre of science fiction, fantasy and horror, I've had a couple of people look at my list of seven books, which is really, again, not very much and say, well, that's really different from, you know, this book, uh, this this list at io9 or you know some of the other uh, genre outlets um, that are very focused on specific books. But, you know, everybody comes up with a with a different list. And it's so it's so idiosyncratic. I mean what what makes a book best 
uh, you know, what what really what really makes it jump out at you and and say, you know, maybe if you read it in January and you think I'm going to keep this in mind for a whole year, I've I've done that before. Uh, you just you just know this is sure. one of those. I mean, Fault in Our Stars. Uh, I read that in January. Uh, the John Green book. John Green, yeah, the young adult novel. Uh, and I thought, um, at, at the time, I thought, wow, if I read a better book this year, I will be amazed because this mm-hmm. just reduced me to to, to to sobs. And I am so jaded after years of book reviewing that I never cry at books anymore. I know, uh, I know the feeling, but it's so just, wonderful when you find one. I know. Well, it yep. broke me down. Uh, and I, you know, sure enough, when when uh, November came, I thought, wow, that was actually the big experience for me in terms of reading fiction this year. And that was going to be my question. I think which, you know, when you're compiling these lists, do you have those that you think are are maybe not ones that the publisher, as you had said, you know, had been, uh, had been pushing uh, like, you know, people who eat darkness or, or books that you feel, you know, that otherwise didn't stand out for you, except ones that you read and you personally had a reaction to, and you thought, you know what, this is, this is just going on the list. You know, the one I, I, I always want to single out uh, uh, in that area is um, My Friend Dahmer uh, by Durf Back Durf, mm-hmm. uh, which is a graphic novel uh, by uh, a well-known comics artist who happened to go to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial right. killer. Um, that was a book that just elect- electrified me, and I read it in a single sitting, uh, mm-hmm. and I just was pinned to my seat, and I thought, my God, this is brilliant. And not it's not just a horror story about a serial killer. It's it's just a psychological portrait, mm-hmm. it's, and within sort of the, the greater story of the 1970s. And I read it, and I thought this is just great, and nobody else will have this on their list. My ass is going to be so <laughs> far out there backing this book. Uh, and yet, when I got to the end of the year, I just thought, I, this, this, I, I just you have to be brutally honest on these lists. And that was the answer for me. It was one of the great books of the year. And as far as I know, I'm not even sure anybody else read that book this year. But uh, it's just, it's beyond brilliant. Well, that's that's what we're there for at the end as, as critics, is to get those books out there that no one yeah. else is, is going to pay attention to unless we tell them. We've been talking with Lev Grossman, and you can see his critical work in Time magazine or pick up his latest novel, The Magician King. Lev, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, guys. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. And next up, PW Features editor Andrew Albanese will demystify the complicated dealings between the U.S. Department of Justice and the big six publishers. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW Features editor Andrew Albanese is here to give us the scoop on some recent dealings in the business side of publishing. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Greetings and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. So the Department of Justice recently brought a lawsuit against Apple and major publishers charging them with price fixing. Can you explain the history of the lawsuit for our listeners? Sure. So, you know, the history of the lawsuit actually dates back to about 2010 and the launch of the Apple iPad. Uh, What the government alleges is that five of the big six publishers conspired with Apple to to switch the model for selling e-books from what was then a wholesale model to what's known as the agency model. Now, Mm -hmm. under a wholesale model, 
a publisher would sell a copy to a retailer at a discount, and the retailer was then free to sell the book at whatever price they choose, much like in the print book world. Under the agency model, however, publishers essentially began to retail their own ebooks. In other words, rather than offering discounts to retailers and allowing retailers to set the price to the consumers, publishers would now set the price to the consumer, and they would pay the retailer a 30% commission, uh, hence the agency model. Mm-hmm. So the first question is, why switch to agency pricing? Uh, now, remember, just a few years ago, uh, you know, before the iPad and the tablet revolution, uh, Amazon pretty much dominated the ebook world. Uh, it still kind of does, actually. But with its Kindle platform, uh, prior to 2010, it was said to have controlled upwards of 90% of all ebook sales. Wow. That kind of market power gave them a real advantage, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, and Amazon sought to pretty much cement their grip on the ebook market by offering ebooks cheaply for $9.99 or lower. Um, you know, publishers. You know, the publishers would allege that they were even selling some ebooks at a loss in order to win market share. Uh, that hasn't been necessarily proven; just alleged. But it's not hard to believe that they would. Um, now, the low ebook pricing was not only cementing Amazon's ebook market position uh, as more and more Kindles were being sold. And remember, it was a very popular item right out of the box. Uh, publishers began to see that it was, you know, having an effect on print book sales as well. You know, after all, why would you pay uh, thirty dollars for a hardcover? when you've got this shiny new device and you can get that same book for $10 delivered right to your device, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I certainly, I've known people, um, actually, someone, uh, even a member of my family does this, um, who actually go into bookstores, look at the books in the bookstores, and then pull out their Kindles and download them. Yeah, that's a practice that's become known as showrooming. Uh, mm-hmm. And bookstores are very concerned about it. That they'll, they'll go in and they'll uh, see the books and they'll use the bookstores in their communities and, and find what they want to read and then just pull out their uh, devices and order the book you know, to be delivered the next day from Amazon or download the Kindle edition mm-hmm. right there. So you, you can see where you know the publishing industry was a little concerned about what was going on in the ebook realm. Uh, so allegedly panicked by Amazon's low pricing of ebooks, publishers were said to have coordinated an effort, coordinated an effort with Apple to use the launch of the iPad and their new iBookstore as an opportunity to all switch to the agency model at the same time, uh, a move that would give publishers much more control over the final consumer pricing. So where exactly is the alleged conspiracy in that? Well, basically, the government is suggesting that were to each of these publishers try to go it alone to the agency model, they wouldn't be able to. Then no publisher would risk its Amazon relationship mm. by just up and switching to the agency model. And there's some basis for that belief. In 2009, Macmillan uh, first informed Amazon that they were going to be moving to, the, to agency pricing for eBooks, and Amazon responded by pulling the buy buttons for all Macmillan titles. I remember know? that. I have, uh, I have a lot of I have a lot of friends who are authors uh, who are published by yep. Macmillan, and they were outraged that suddenly, because of this dispute between publishers and Amazon, no one could buy their books. Right. That I remember when my books were available. Yeah. And, you know, you remember, this, um, this is, we're talking about all Macmillan titles, print, whatever. They were all gone off Amazon. Uh, and Amazon, you know, it, it delivers quite a bit of sales to, to the major publishers. And with Macmillan, we're talking Farstras and Giroux, St. Martin's. We're talking a lot of, of, of uh, imprints or a lot of uh, uh, publishers that Macmillan oversees. Some of the great books uh, that are um, definitely, Macmillan's a, a major player. 
Um, you know, the publishers, you know, they, they came up, supposedly, allegedly came up with the idea that, hey, if we all did this together, then there would be better, more strength in our position, or so the DOJ would have you believe. And mm-hmm. so five of the big six publishers actually did switch to the agency model almost simultaneously in conjunction uh, with the launch of the iBookstore. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, prices went up. They went up from, you know, about nine ninety nine on Amazon to about 15 bucks, and that all happened pretty much overnight. And that, the government says, was illegal under the Sherman Act, which is our antitrust laws. Now, it's worth noting that the DOJ and the U.S. government, the federal government, was not the first to move on this so-called price-fixing conspiracy. There actually are three separate actions here. Uh, First came an investigation by some state's attorney generals, and that has since resulted in a lawsuit and a settlement, which is still to be approved. That's likely to happen in 2013. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a consumer class action suit. That suit actually came first, and its claims are virtually identical to what was uh, charged in the government and the state suits. Uh, And in April 2012, of course, came the DOJ suit, and uh, that was quickly followed by a settlement. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and right now PW Features editor Andrew Albanese is giving us the rundown on a recent lawsuit that claims that publishers were fixing prices. Um, So uh, taking this out of the the legal realm, because I know my head is swimming a bit, uh, (laughs) and it's not just because I have a cold, um, how how might the alleged price fixing and the lawsuit affect people who buy books? You you said that um, when all these publishers switched over to using the agency model, um, that meant prices went up. So now that settlements are being made, are prices going back down? That's it's, it's interesting to watch. In terms of the alleged price fixing, the net effect was, yes, some ebook prices went up and went up sharply uh, after the switch to the agency model. Um, there was, of course, no shortage of still cheap ebooks to be found on, on the Internet. So it's hard to say what the average price of the ebook would be. But for bestsellers and popular, uh, you know, first run new front list books, you know, the stuff that you'd be rushing to the bookstore to get when it was just published, those books, you know, on, in Kindle editions went up, you know, about, you know, a third. Um, but the publishers argued that consumers actually benefited from that because mm. Amazon's predatory pricing was really having a bad effect on the overall book selling market. And eventually, if Amazon was able to solidify its position, that would be much worse for consumers who would eventually be forced to accept Amazon's ebook terms because there'd be, you know, no other competition in the field. Um, there's some basis to that reasoning as well, because since the introduction of the agency model, Amazon's market position has actually slipped from over 90% of the ebook market to around 60% of the ebook market, which mm. means that you know maybe a level price playing field for ebooks has actually enticed more entries into the ebook oh, market. Wow. Certainly, ebook you know consumers today can choose from among a lot of devices and a lot of different bookstores now to buy their books. Now, you know, I mentioned the settlement before, too. You know, we're going to talk about how this might affect consumers. Uh, in settling with the government, the publishers have agreed to allow ebook discounting for two years. So you may have noticed that, yes, Amazon has begun lowering prices on its ebooks already. Now, it does not seem like we're going to get the all out sort of price war that some have predicted or that this would have this, uh, the major effect on you know, the overall prices of ebooks. But yes, ebook prices have been discounted on Amazon. Mm. But I, I should also mention the state settlement, too, because that deal, when it's approved and it's scheduled for a public hearing in February of this year, mm-hmm. is going to offer consumers uh, modest refunds. Those refunds are going to range from about 25 cents to a, a buck and a quarter for a popular bestseller that you might have bought. Mm. 
Now, most of those refunds are going to be issued as credits. In all, there's about $70 million in credits allotted from the settlement fund. And I'm sure many of your listeners uh, probably have already been notified that they're going to get a credit. And once the deal gains court approval, they're going to get it probably within 30 days. Now, I have to say this settlement, quote-unquote settlement, is actually – it seems to me like a big kiss for publishers, you know, welcome. Because if you get a small refund from an ebook purchase that, that posts to your ebook account, what are you likely to do with that refund? Go buy more well, books. Right. You're going to buy more books, exactly. So who will be out the money on this for the refund? Who will be? Well, the publishers are putting the money into the settlement fund. But, you know, for that dollar twenty-five they're going to give you, you're probably going to spend another, you know, $15 on, on buying books. So... It's not a bad investment for them. We'll put it that way. Right. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Right now, uh, we're talking to PW Features and se- uh, Features Editor and Senior Writer Andrew Albanese. And I-, I wanted to ask. So, so you say this this has been going. So this has been going on for the last about, about roughly two years. Um, but within the last month, two of the largest publishing houses have announced plans to merge: Penguin and Random House. Um, and how do the mer- these merger plans affect the lawsuit and vice versa? Well, that's an interesting point. You know, originally Penguin uh, did not settle with the Department of Justice. They very, very loudly vowed to fight the charges at trial. Uh, but with the multi-billion-dollar merger now needing government approval, uh, Penguin officials had one of those road to Damascus moments, and they decided to jump on the settlement. Right. Clearly, they don't want to be bogged down uh, fighting with the Department of Justice when they need approval for this this major merger. But the interesting part of what's going on here is Random House, because Random House was the only big six publisher that was not charged in the conspiracy. Uh, but once the merger is approved, it's going to be bound by the settlement after all. So that's not such a big deal in terms of like the consumer, because you know, let's face it, Random House was not going to be able to keep its ebook prices high over the next two years while all its competitors were offering discounted prices, right? right. Mm-hmm. It was going to have to abide by the market, at least in some way. But now it also has to engage in some of the internal compliance measures, which are going to be really quite a hassle. But still, in the scheme of things, that's probably all you know, very small potatoes compared to where uh, this merger is going to take that combined company. So um, at this point, uh, all the publishers except Macmillan, um, who were named in the suit, have settled with the Department of Justice or have announced that they plan to. Is that right? That's right. So how is that going to affect readers who want to buy books from those publishers as opposed to a small press um, or as opposed to a Macmillan book? You know, it's really hard to speculate on that. You know, we're going to probably – the thing is we're probably going to know soon enough. So (laughs) I'm almost afraid to speculate on it because, you know, by the time I actually get a good handle on how this is going to affect the market, the settlement's going to be pretty much out of effect. It's only a a two-year deal for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, my gut tells me that – in the scheme of things, this whole lawsuit is actually going to mean very, very little to consumers. And the reason I say that ultimately is because the ebook business is still so new. You know, five years ago, we were just getting our heads around these, you know, e-ink readers uh, that were, you know, four hundred dollars from Amazon, uh, and now we have these amazing multimedia tablets um, that sell for less than two hundred dollars. With that price even dropping, I, I think it's safe to say that consumers can expect a lot of changes in the ebook market, and I'm sure they can expect that it's going to get better, and not just for the major publishers, but for this whole new generation of of new publishers that can incorporate multimedia functionality. Mm-hmm. Into their into their books, thanks to these tablets. Um, but I 
don't think that this action really is going to have uh, any kind of major effect aside from costing all of these publishers quite a bit in legal fees and hassles. Well, well, here we are again uh, with – so Macmillan is – you, you had talked about we uh, two years ago where they uh, – Amazon just you know, got rid of all the buttons to buy books. And here they are back in the, – the only publisher back in the suit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Macmillan is still vowing to fight this suit and, you know – in all likelihood, Macmillan books are going to have to play by the rules set by the settlement. You know, mm-hmm. Macmillan is still vowing to fight the charges, uh, and they're set for a trial in June of 2013, along with Apple as well. Um, you know, it's interesting because in a year-end letter, John Sargent, uh, the CEO of Macmillan, sounded right. absolutely resolute. You know, he said it was just you – know, Quoting from his letter that it was hard to settle when you know you've done nothing wrong. You know, cold, call me old-fashioned, he mm-hmm. said. Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see what else besides old-fashioned Sargent may be called. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, his principal stand, I think, is probably going to be seen as admirable to some. But I'm having a hard time seeing what Macmillan stands to gain by fighting this at trial. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, Macmillan has already redrawn its agency agreements to essentially comply with the broad strokes of the DOJ settlement, at least in terms of allowing some discounting on the consumer pricing of e-books. You know, because, again, like Random House, they can't be selling you know, exp- more expensive e-books when everyone else is selling you know, discounted e-books. Right. Uh, and also, the legal bills that McMillan is racking up here, you know, in his letter, uh, Sargent said they look like unit sales numbers for Fifty Shades of Grey. And, you know, that's a lot. That is so, huge. <laughs> that's pretty big, yeah. So by not settling, McMillan is really the only publisher left in this mess that's facing uncertainty. You know, rather than accepting the settlement uh, and knowing that in two years it's going to be back to business as usual, they are now facing a time-consuming costly and unpredictable trial that could not only shed uh, an unwanted light on their business, but right. they could lose. So you, know, you have to wonder what they're really going for here. Uh, you know, in approving the settlement, the, the federal judge who oversaw the process called the government suit a straightforward price-fixing case, and she easily brushed aside more than 800 public comments that were filed in opposition. Nobody seemed to like this deal, at least nobody who filed comments with the government. Um, so McMillan's going to have to make some tough choices because it seems to me like Judge Cote, who's going to preside over McMillan's trial, has already made up her mind. Well, you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Uh, right now we're talking to uh, features, Publishers Weekly Features edit, Editor Andrew Albanese about the uh, now two-year-old lawsuit that claims publishers were fixing prices. And we have Macmillan as the last of the uh, six publishers. If they do lose, if Macmillan does lose, what, what do they stand to lose? Well, if they do stand to lose, what they will lose is, well, first of all, you have, you know, all of the information they're going to be giving at deposition. Like, I think, I think the last thing any publisher wants, that any business wants, is to have, you know, government attorneys nosing around your business and having you give sworn statements. And not to say that there's anything wrong going on there, but still, as I said, it might shed some unwanted light on business practices. But also, you know, as I said, two years from now, mm-hmm. the ebook market is going to be considerably different. And I think everybody who settled, uh, all of the other publishers, who, by the way, settled with the explicit uh, caveat that they were not guilty of anything, that there was absolutely no wrongdoing, they just decided to take the path of least resistance. They know in two years that these restrictions are going to come off, that these restrictions, aside from the internal compliance measures, are really probably not going to be that onerous in terms of how it's going to affect their market. Uh, they're going to be done in two years. 
if McMillan goes through this whole process, which is going to be very costly, and then it loses, that clock could just be starting for McMillan while it's winding out for everybody else. Right. And um, uh, one, the, so the one, the one thing that we, we haven't talked about, we talked about publishers, is uh, Apple. What yeah. is their role in the? Uh, what is their? What is their take on this? Well, we may find out more about what Apple's take is on this at trial when mm-hmm. they finally do go to trial. But sadly, the person you really want to talk to about this, uh, Steve Jobs, is not going to be available for a deposition. Sure. Um, you know, I have to say, just looking at it, like Apple may have been at the center of discussions about moving to the agency model with the launch of its iPad and its iBook store, whether or not. They were part of a conspiracy. They were trading information back and forth about one another. It's not a slam dunk of a case, at least not from all the trial records that I've read. Mm. But but I'll say this. Antitrust law is complex. It is meant to protect consumers. Uh, It's not meant to protect market actors. So I really am out of my depth when it comes to trying to predict how an antitrust case is is going to play out. Right. Well, um, thank you so much for wading through all of that documentation and explaining it to us, Andrew. That's a, that is a great public service. <laughs> My pleasure. I hope it uh, all made sense to you. Uh, it did, actually. Yeah, that was really good. Thank you. <laughs> Believe it or not, I, I definitely, I mean, I didn't I didn't have a sense of really why it was called the agency model to start with. Right. Um, so seeing it as, as literally as a commission thing, uh, as publishers paying a percentage um, to the to the booksellers rather than the booksellers buying stock at one price, basically trying to buy low and sell high. Uh, that that's uh, that's a very interesting distinction for me, and so I I, I sort of understand that aspect of it a lot. Well, better. there you have it. I, I have one other question. Have we have you seen anything like this in publishing before? Any kind of mass antitrust suit? In terms of antitrust suit, not since I've been covering the field, and certainly since not since I've been in the field, which has you know been since 1989 when I first you know took an editorial assistant job. No, this is the most unprecedented lawsuit that I've seen uh, in my career in publishing. But then again, the ebook is the most unprecedented thing I've seen in my lifetime. So yeah, this <laughs> there is you true. Go. This is true. This is uh, Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and uh, we've been speaking with Andrew Albanese, uh, features editor at Publishers Weekly, who has done a marvelous job of explaining this lawsuit to us. Again, thank you so much, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. And and that's it for today's show. Uh, Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.